reading today comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10 this morning. And beginning in verse, verse 1, it reads, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, we just pray for this moment right now. Father, we pray that you would remove distractions. I pray that you would remove distractions from me as the preacher, that I would not say my own thoughts, my own opinions, but I would leave all those to the side to boldly proclaim your thoughts and your opinions, for your opinions are truth. And so, Father, I pray for the listener as well today, that they would not be distracted with all the busyness that goes on with the Easter weekend with all the worries of life, but that here for a moment, for a brief moment, we might pause and focus upon the word of the living God, the word that has the power to change our lives forever, and not just our lives, but our eternal destiny, which goes on and on without ending of days. Help me now and help us. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may be seated. The curse was more powerful than they could have possibly imagined. In fact, this curse had completely changed life as they know it. Their land, which was once a green, lush environment, became a frozen wasteland. We're talking Minnesota January-type weather. Negative 20s. It was nasty. It was difficult. And not only that, there was an ever-ongoing battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Why were things so difficult in their land? Well, because the land had been put under a curse. And it was because of this one curse that it would always be winter, but yet never Christmas. You know, this phrase, always winter but never Christmas, comes from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I like the way it's phrased there because it's actually a brilliant way of describing life on our own planet. Not literally, but metaphorically, on our planet, it is always Christmas, always winter, but never Christmas. For just as Narnia was placed under a deadly curse by an evil power, so too is our world, but all the much even more so. 
See, because our world is always winter, but never Christmas, we don't have to look very far to see the effects of this never-ending winter. Effects like sickness and disease. Effects like drought and famine. Effects like conflict in our relationships, both individually as well as collectively as nations. And if that wasn't bad enough, we know what the final result is of this curse is, don't we? And that is death. Separation, loss, and suffering. And though our world comes with a curse, it also comes with a promise of an Aslan-like figure who would one day come to be the great and blessed curse breaker. A promise from God himself that he would send a curse breaker who would free us from its curse and end the spell. And that is precisely why we are here this morning celebrating Easter Sunday, is it not? Because Easter is all about the breaking of the curse. How? Well, good question. To answer that, we need to look at our passage this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, I'll give you a moment to turn there. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses here. And in these verses, we are going to find three things that Easter tells us about this curse. Here they are. Easter reveals the power of the curse. Secondly, the power that breaks the curse. And third, the power that reverses the curse. Let's look at that first one, the power of the curse. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We know that's the devil. And the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In these verses, Paul describes what this curse has done for us. And it's not just bad, right? It's really bad. Look what he says. We were three things. We were dead, we were disobedient, and we were doomed. That's a pretty bad state of affairs. And do you see what Paul is saying about our spiritual state? He's saying, apart from Christ, we were not hobbling around on spiritual crutches. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he saying that apart from Christ, we were on spiritual medication. And as long as we kept up with it, we'd be okay. That's not what he's saying either. Nor is he saying that apart from Christ, we were even on spiritual life support. He doesn't say that either. Apart from Christ, Paul tells us, because of this curse, we are left completely dead. That's no spiritual life in you whatsoever. No pulse, no life, nothing, nada, zilch. Apart from Christ, what we are spiritually before God is a smelly, stinking, decaying corpse. That's a pretty grave state of affairs, is it not? Pun intended. But you get the idea. That's what we are before God. We are dead. And what can a dead corpse do for itself to make things improved? Nothing. It sits there and it decays. That's all it does. And so Paul tells us that that's what this curse has done for us. It's, it's murdered us spiritually. Now, let me ask you, is Paul exaggerating here? Is this just hyperbolic language to kind of try to make a point? You know, kind of like our parents told us, you better get that room clean or I'm going to kill you. Those kind of, is that what Paul's doing here? No. Some people think he is. They think, come on, spiritually dead? Come, 
I don't look, look at me. I don't look dead. I don't look that bad. You know what I mean? Like, sure, I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm not Adolf Hitler either. Like, come on, Paul. Spiritually dead? Lighten up a bit. Sure, I'm not perfect, but, you know, I'm, overall, I would say I'm a pretty good person compared to some of the other people around here. <laughs> That's how we tend to think, isn't it? Well, on the right hand, you're right. You're not as morally bad as you possibly could be. Of course not. But on the other hand, you're missing one important truth, which is this. Even your good works are done with wrong motive. Even great things you do to help others, to care for the poor, to, care, to do charitable works, these are done for the wrong reason. And is doing the right thing for the wrong reason commendable to God? No, says the church, right? Absolutely, it's not. For right actions without right heart motive is not commendable before God. It's what? Condemnable. It's, it's wrong. It's evil. And what is our heart's motive, does Paul tell us in this text? Well, look at verse 3. He says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul uses the word flesh, which in the Greek is the word sarks. But he's not talking about physical bodies simply here. No, he's talking about much more than that. In fact, what Paul is actually talking about here is our selfish desires. All right? Paul is saying that we used to orchestrate our lives to satisfy those selfish desires that are within us. And so what Paul is saying is that we used to look out at the world, at all the people in it, all the things in it, and we used to be like the orchestra you know, the conductor who's trying to orchestrate the whole band to just play according to the tune that we want. Serve me. Do it my way. Satisfy what I desire. That's what Paul's saying we did. What the curse did was it warped our hearts into being like little computer processors that just constantly goes, goes around analyzing people and things and thinks, how can I get these things to serve me? The Bible calls that idolatry, which is, of course, sin. And because... It is sin. We should not do it. But why is idolatry wrong? Because idolatry is worshiping the creation and not the creator, which is the ultimate sin. That is not what we were made for. In fact, our hearts, what we were actually created for, what the fuel that makes our hearts run properly and and actually enjoy life and our desires can actually fully be fulfilled, is worshiping God. For he is goodness himself. And when we center our lives upon him, that's where happiness is found, right? Not in turning the creation into the object of worship where only the creator goes. And we see this in Mark 12, right? What happens here is that we don't worship God. Instead, we worship things that God has made, which is why Jesus tells us the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it. And notice it's second is to love your neighbor as yourself. But sin's curse reversed this. It flipped it on its head. And instead, now we put ourselves in the place where only God deserves to be. See, God deserves the place of worship, but we put, what, we put our desires there. We say, step aside, God, this is, where, this is where my stuff goes. This is what my life is about. This is what makes me happy and content, not you. And so instead, we put ourselves in the place where God only deserves to be. And not only is this silly because it doesn't work, it doesn't lead to actual happiness. In the end, as Paul points out to us, it leads to our death and our destruction. 
which is actually kind of what our whole culture kind of functions on, that whole system, right? We live in a me culture, right? It's all about myself and my happiness. And we've been told this ever since we were kids. Burger King told me that I should have it my way. Disney told me that if I wish upon a star, all my dreams would come true. Bon Jovi told me it's my life. And if that wasn't enough, we have households full of cute little demonic decorations telling us to follow our arrow, which simply means follow your heart, which is a really bad idea. (laughs) Because our hearts are warped so badly that if we follow them, we are not following God's way. We're actually rebellion, rebelling against God. My dreams, see, they conflict with God's design. They conflict with God's instructions. And another thing about this whole my life and my dreams, it's not even my life. It's his. It's on loan from God, and I will give it back to him one day and stand on account for what I've done with it. And so we must ignore demonic little decorations and not follow our flesh or our hearts or our arrow or our world, which is so hell-bent upon this destruction. So that's the flesh and that's the world, but what about this devil stuff? What's all that about? Well, that's a much bigger conversation than we have time for here this morning, but just one comment on it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, Paul warns against becoming conceited or puffed up. It's being prideful. It's being arrogant. It's thinking highly of yourself. And the reason he gives is this. is because he says those who do that will suffer the same condemnation, the same fate, the same judgment as the devil. That's what he says. And this actually has a lot of profoundness to it if we think about it. So just one comment here. But here's why this is so profound. It means that the same problem that led the devil to becoming the devil is inside of each and every one of us. It's the same exact problem, in fact, that leads to our spiritual self-centered deafness. And yes, deafness is a word. I would know. I just made it up right now for this conversation. We make up words around here. You'll get used to it. But here's the point. No one here really has a problem with God sending the devil to hell, right? I mean, because if anybody deserves it, come on, he deserves it. The devil definitely deserves it. He's got it coming. But do you see what Paul is telling us? He's saying that the same poison that makes the devil the devil is pulsing through the veins of our heart. It's going right through us. In fact, it flows out of the center of our hearts. And this poison is absolutely deadly to our spiritual life. In fact, it leads to our spiritual doom, as we've been talking about. This is why Paul says in verse 3 that we were by nature children of of wrath, which is talking about what? God's coming and future judgment. God is going to judge the world. Just because it hasn't happened yet, aside from the flood, but the final judgment hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not coming. It is surely coming. And this is a problem because we live in a highly achievement-driven culture. We are used to earning the grade. We are used to gaining the promotion. We are used to winning the medal. And so we take this mentality and we apply it to God. We start to think, okay, what's a good person? I can do that. We start to think, okay, I need to please God and receive his blessing. I need to get to heaven, not hell. So I will be achievement-orientated. I will accomplish this. I will gain it. I will do what's right. 
and our achievement-driven hearts make us think that if we just try hard enough, it'll be enough. We think if our good works outweigh our bad works, then that will be enough, and God won't do this whole judgment thing. But here's the thing. The curse of sin is so powerful that even if we lived one million Mother Teresa lives, it wouldn't even budge the scale one microfraction of an inch. Wouldn't touch it. That's a lot of really good lives lived, right? According to our standards. Which means our goodness is not enough. It means the curse of sin is so bad, so completely and entirely deadly, that there's absolutely nothing we can do to break its curse. We are completely spiritually dead, as Paul said. We are disobedient. And because of this, we are doomed. And while we have absolute no power whatsoever to save ourselves, thankfully, there is one who has all that power and more to do so. Which leads us to our second point. Easter reveals the power of the curse, which we just talked about. But secondly, it reveals the power that breaks the curse. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm going to give you all a pop quiz this morning. I hope you came ready for it. But I'll give you a hint, and it's in verse 4. In fact, I'll give you an even better hint, because I saw some of you have more than one cinnamon roll, and I know what sugar brain does, so I'll go a little further. The answer's found in the first two words in verse 4, which actually is the first two words of verse 4, so if you really get this quiz wrong, we're going to have to get you to the doctor. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but what made us alive? Shout it out when you see it. But God. And this morning, if you are here, if you have passed from death to life, if you are a Christian at all, your entire Christian testimony boils down to those two words, but God. That's it. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God. I was disobedient and following the course of the world, the flesh, and the devil, but God. I was desperately doomed and destined for destruction. We need a few more D words in that. But that was our state, but God who is rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you are a Christian, that means you are saved from the curse of sin and the coming wrath of God entirely by his grace. Full stop. Period. No works. His grace. Alone. Which means, if you're a child of God, it's not because you're good, but because he's good. See the difference there? You're a child of God not because you're good, but because he's good, and he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. 
Make no mistake about this point, because there's a whole lot of people in our culture who do get this wrong, sadly, and this is very important. But Paul is crystal clear here. The grace of God and our goodness are completely incompatible. They don't mix. They're like oil and water. You can try to get them together. You can shake it up a little bit, but you know what's going to happen? They're going to separate again. They do not mix. And so this means your salvation is either entirely based upon your works or God's grace. It's not both. You can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. And I would advise against your goodness. Because what does the Apostle Paul tell us about our goodness before God's holiness? It's filthy rags. It's not going to do anything. Philippians, he goes even further and calls it dung. This is not something you want to hold your eternal state by. You do not want to put your interest, you do not want to invest in your goodness because before God, it's not going to hold up. But his goodness will every time. And so when it comes to breaking the curse of sin, we could not do it. Only he could do it. How did he do it, though? This is the question that runs right through the Old Testament scriptures, and it keeps popping up again over and over and over and over. How is a holy God going to redeem sinful man? How can he be holy and righteous and do what is right and yet forgive sinful man? How is this going to work? And in Genesis 3, when the curse of sin takes effect, God promises one day to send a curse breaker who would end our endless winter and bring in an everlasting Christmas. The promise was vague, but it was there. Throughout the years, people came and went, yet no curse breaker appeared. The death promised in the garden took life after life after life. Funerals became a new norm as no hope appeared in sight. But then one day, God's voice spoke out to a man whom he told would have a son. Not just any old son, but a very special son. In fact, God said that this son was so special that the entire world would be blessed through him. And upon hearing this, the man thought, was this finally it? Would this be the one, the long-awaited curse breaker, who would undo the deadly spell once and for all? But how could this be, he thought. For me and my wife are much too old to have a child. For they were well beyond the years of childbearing. How would God do this? Well, miraculously. And sure enough, God did, as God's promises always come true. And they did indeed have a son whom they named Isaac, who was a lovely little strong boy who's healthy and who made their mama and dada so very proud. The years went by. And one day, God's voice spoke out again to the man, but this time with news he absolutely did not want to hear. He said, Abraham, yes, God, Abraham said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, the son whom you love so greatly. Take him with you to a hill, and I would like you to kill him there as a sacrifice offered to me. What? The man thought. How could this be? Why would God do this? Surely this is not what he desires. Why would he have me kill the son of promise? How would the curse ever be broken? Hadn't there been enough death already? Haven't people suffered enough? Nevertheless, the man knew 
better than disobeying God, and so he obeyed him, and so off they went on their journey to the mountain where God told him to sacrifice his son. The trip was a solemn one. The father kept looking at his son and wondering what God was doing. Why would he command such a thing? But then on the third day, they arrived at the foot of the mountain, and the father turned to his servants, left them there, and him and his son headed up the mountainside. He carried the tools to make the fire and the knife, and his son carried the wood upon his back. Then on their way up, the boy turned to his father and he said, Father, where is the sacrifice for the burnt offering? The man hesitated, but then replied, My son, do not worry, for the Lord will provide. Finally, then they arrived at the place of sacrifice upon the mountain. And the father went and built an altar, and he arranged wood upon it. And then he turned to his son, but then he bound his hands and his feet. And he took him to the altar, laid him out upon it. And with a look of fear in his eyes, the father obediently picked up the knife, raised it high into the air, and then a voice rang out from heaven. Abraham, do not hurt the boy in any way. For I see that you truly fear God, for you have not withheld even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its thorns, by its horns in a thicket. And he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham then named the place Yahweh Yirah, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The reason the curse is broken, church, is because of one thing and one thing alone. Yahweh Yira. The Lord provides. Which is the sole reason we are here celebrating this morning. For nearly 2,000 years ago, God provided by leading his one and only son whom he loved up the hill with a wooden cross upon his back. And when he reached the top, he lay upon the wood. But this time, heaven remained silent. The knife was not held back, and it came down violently upon him. Why? Because he was the promised one, the promised curse breaker, who through him would bless all of the world, who through him would defeat the spell and free the people once and for all. Because of the curse of sin, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive in Christ Jesus through the power of the cross, which not only breaks the curse, but it actually reverses the curse and turns it remarkably into a blessing for us. It's remarkable. Not only does Easter reveal the power of the curse, the power that breaks the curse, but third, it reveals the power that reverses the curse. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And look at verse 6. And he raised us up with him, and then did what? Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's at the right hand of the throne of the Father. That's where we are positionally. That's the kind of riches we have in Christ. 
And verse 7 says, why did he do this? Here's the answer. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. After Christ died upon the cross, they buried his beaten and bloody body in a tomb where it lay there in the cold, heavy air, surrounded by death. It lay there completely lifeless, completely breathless, no pulse whatsoever, no heartbeat. But then, in the early morning of the third day, his heart began to beat. His blood began to flow. Waking up, what was dead but a moment ago. And because his heart beats, it means that everything has changed. Because the blood that brought us peace with God is now racing through his veins. And so with that one breath, he put death to death, which led to our life and enables us this morning to confidently sing, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? For the sin For sin is the sting that results in death, but thanks be to God who gives us victory over sin and death through our glorious resurrected Savior. You need to say amen right there. Praise God for that. And so for those of us whom this is our song, we can then go on and begin to experience the power of resurrection life, which is surely coming in this life as we walk in those good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And so do you see here why good works don't give us grace? Good works come out of grace. Don't mix those up. Don't flip those around, or you will still be under the curse. And it is only because of God's good work in Christ Jesus that we too can pass through death and step forward into eternal life, resurrected life. This past week, I came across the story of a preacher who he was telling about how in World War II, the German army, after they had conquered France. They set up patrols all around the border trying to keep people in so they wouldn't escape out into other countries to find freedom. And they couldn't figure out what was going on here because in German intelligence, they saw that the numbers of the town just kept dropping. They kept having funeral and funeral and funeral after funeral. And they're trying to figure out what's going on in there. Is there a plague? You know, people just keep dying. And so what they did was they sent some German soldiers to investigate. And what they found out was this was that during these funerals, people would walk into the grave and they'd just keep on walking right through a tunnel that was dug that led across the border into freedom. This morning, this Easter morning, I pronounce to you that the path to freedom and everlasting life goes right through an empty grave, which is exactly why Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection. And not just spiritually, for one day, very soon, physically as well, when the power of curse of the curse is fully and finally reversed, and we experience those immeasurable riches that we just read about in Ephesians chapter 2, fully in Christ, we will experience those, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The wonder of Easter is this, and I got to say this one slowly. Sin put ourselves where only God deserves to be. But the cross 
put God where only sinners deserve to be. And finally, the resurrection is God putting us where only he deserves to be. That's one you might want to write down and think about, but it is so true. And all of this happens because of those two little words, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with our resurrected Savior. And so if you are a follower of Christ, it means that your song this morning is Yahweh Yira, the Lord provides. For in Christ, our Lord did indeed provide a perfect Savior, a curse breaker, who broke the power of sin and death as he defeated it triumphantly on the cross and rose again on the third day into resurrection life. And so we too can walk through his grave and experience that same resurrection life. Is Christ your provider? Is Christ your curse breaker? Or are you still resting in your own works, trying to break it yourself? If so, give up on that foolish endeavor. And I can think of no better day than Easter Sunday to pass through the tunnel that is found in Jesus Christ's empty grave into a curse-free everlasting life. Father, We thank you for Resurrection Sunday. We thank you for the power of Jesus who turns those who are spiritually dead into glorious spiritual resurrection. And a spiritual resurrection that we experience now, which will one day, like a seed that is planted, germinate into a full-grown, everlasting, physical, resurrected life. And so we pray in Jesus' name, that you would help us to live according to this resurrection hope. That we would not live under the curse, that we would not return to trying to break it and live according to our own flesh, but remember that you broke it once and for all on the hill, on that mountain called Calvary. And so, Father, if there's one here today who thinks that their good works will outweigh their bad works, that there's any prayer of a chance of that happening, I pray, Lord, that they would just give up on that that instead, that they would humble themselves in repentance and turn to Jesus who paid for all the sin and more upon the cross. Jesus paid it all, every single bit, all to this I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So by grace, Lord, we ask that those here who may be not trusting in Christ would that by grace through faith in Jesus, they would accept the resurrected life that you offer. We will give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.